welcome to the Fat Emperor podcast. I'm your host, Ivor Cummins. We're supported by the Irish Heart Disease Awareness Charity, which advocates a simple CT scan to reveal your CAC score. So know your score and take action to prevent that premature heart attack. Everything you need to know will be right here. Hey, this is Ivor Cummins in Denver. And uh, I was going to do a quick chat with Dr. Paul Mason on coronavirus because everyone's asking about it. It's very topical. So, hey, Dr. Mason, how are you doing? I'm well, thanks, Ivor. Always fun to chat. Absolutely. And you're in Australia now in Sydney, right at home? I'm at a uh, Friday morning at 10.30 here in Sydney. Well, it's around 5.30 p.m. in Denver. I just got over from Ireland yesterday before the travel ban. Though, interestingly, the Trump travel ban is for the contiguous states of Europe that have no borders. So Ireland and UK is not involved. So I'm, I'm okay. Which is just as well, because uh, the UK has more, more uh, higher rates than some other countries in Europe. It's an interesting decision, that one. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of politics involved along with the medical stuff. But anyway, yeah, everyone's asking about it. I put out a few tweets, but again, data-centric. I'm not getting into judgment calls on you know, who's more important than others to protect. But I'm really interested by the mortality rates and the ambiguity. It is early days. So maybe we well, talk about that first, the probable eventual mortality rates in Western kind of industrialized societies, maybe? Well, I think this has certainly got everybody scared. I mean, the simple fact is that most people who get it will get a mild illness. So based on the data coming out of China, so one study that looked at 44,500 participants or subjects, they actually had a uh, 81% of them actually had a mild illness. So that basically means that it didn't affect their lungs, they didn't have trouble breathing, they didn't have pneumonia. Um, but that means the remaining 19% actually did have a, a more serious illness. And uh, based on the latest figures, and I know you've been reading some really nice uh, research out of South Korea this morning, the, uh, what we call the case fatality rate is probably about 0.6%, um, which is a little bit lower than what was coming out of the Chinese data, which was indicating something in the vicinity of uh, 1.6. And that's probably because the South Korean data is uh, more effective testing and they're picking up a lot more of the minor cases, which is able to bring down the, the average mortality. Now, yeah, I guess you know, for, oh, go for comparison, we should probably compare this with the seasonal influenza which has a case mortality rate of about 0.1%. So if we were to try do a direct comparison, you would probably say based on the South Korean data, the coronavirus, the COVID-19, appears to be about six times uh, more dangerous. Yeah, and it uh, probably similar to the flu. I'm not sure it's tracked so well, though. There's this huge bias towards older people, uh, not too surprising, but also people with coronary vascular disease, cancers, diabetes, respiratory illness, COPD. So it looks like around rough and tough, eight to 10 times more likely to have a fatality uh, with any of these comorbidities. And then there's probably a 10 times risk more for being in your 70s and 80s. So if you put the two together, it seems to be kind of massively stacked towards older and with comorbidities. Uh, would that be fair to say? 
Oh, absolutely. So if we're looking at the data coming out of China, less than 2% of the infections were actually in children, and they were much more likely to have what we call an asymptomatic infection, which means that they, they actually weren't that ill. Um, probably the biggest risk factor is age, but that's probably purely because it's associated with other comorbidities, the like of which you have indicated. So uh, if we actually have a look at some of the data, so people with heart disease, they have the, uh, the death rate of those with coronavirus and heart disease was at 10.5% in one study. If you had diabetes, it was 7.5%. Um, if you had high blood pressure, it was actually 6%. Um, so I think this raises a couple of several important points because diabetes is an independent risk factor for heart disease and in itself has been an independent risk factor for these uh, conditions. We know from history with another uh, coronavirus, the MERS virus in the Middle East, that diabetes was shown to be a significant factor in increasing mortality risk. Um, but when we look at the literature, it's probably not diabetes itself that is the big problem, but the unstable blood glucose levels that come with that. And the reason that's important is because we can potentially um, have patients control their blood sugar levels literally overnight on healthy ketogenic style diets. So if we have a, the current data suggests if you have, um, there's a bit of feedback there, are you getting that? No, not here actually. Okay, good, good. Hopefully it's not coming through. So uh, hopefully uh, the early evidence suggests that if you have diabetes and you get COVID-19, then your mortality is increased by two to three times. But probably if you have stable blood sugar levels, um, mechanistically, because it's the high blood sugar levels that have been shown to associate with suppression of the immune system, your risk of dying will probably come right, right down. Um, in terms of some of the other risk factors, smoking is a big one. So elderly Chinese smokers was a big one. So if you're smoking, now's probably a good time to consider stopping or finding a safer alternative like vaping. Uh, if you have high blood pressure, that's been shown to be a significant risk factor. And that has an interesting connection because there's been a lot of debate in the medical literature about whether some high blood pressure medication called angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blocker drugs may actually increase the risk. And this is because these drugs are shown to increase something called ACE2 in the lungs, which can actually act as a portal for entry for the COVID into the body. Um, but as yet, the medical literature hasn't reached a conclusion on whether or not people taking these high blood pressure medications should actually stop these medications and change them for other types. But I would certainly suggest that if anybody's on those medications, you keep a close eye on the, uh, the news reporting on this, because if it does turn out that these drugs are problematic, then uh, that's certainly an easy thing that you can do to uh, reduce your risk. Yeah, and indeed hypertension is not synonymous with insulin resistance, hyperinsulinemia, but a huge amount of uh, undiagnosed hypertension idiopathic relates very strongly to hyperinsulinemia and blood glucose metabolism issues. So not too shocking that coronary disease, diabetes, hypertension are all clustered together as big risk factors. Can I almost say there's a pattern? Mm. But uh, I guess and a lot of the question is, you know, people say, well, what happens if I do get it? So, you know, as I said, most of the time, if you're young, healthy, no comorbidities, it's probably likely to be quite a mild illness. And uh, for mild disease, the World Health Organization suggests that recovery 
recovery is probably going to be about two weeks. Um, if you have more severe disease, it could be three to six weeks. But the, the problem is that these people who could potentially have the disease for six weeks can end up in intensive care units. And this could very easily overwhelm the health system. And the reason for this is because while, you know, the severity of the condition is, you know, potentially six times more lethal than the standard flu, it's incredibly contagious. It's very transmissible. So uh, if we have a look at something called the reproduction number of a disease, which is an, a good indication of the transmissibility, um, basically a reproduction number of less than one means that if I have the condition and I go into a room of sick people, then I'm only going to pass it on to less than one person, so that disease will eventually die out. Whereas if that number is more than one, that means the disease will um, gradually propagate. So the standard flu has a reproduction number on average of 1.28, whereas coronavirus, the best estimate we have is it's got a reproduction number of 3.28, which means it's incredibly um, contagious. And this means it's a, uh, and given that, you know, people who get sick might be in hospital for six weeks, uh, if a lot of people get it, this could very easily overwhelm the health system. And the problem is that we have something called this exponential spread because the incubation period on average is about four days with the interquartile range or the middle 50% um, usually being uh, symptom-free for about two to seven days before they come down with it. So we've got this big group of people who could potentially be infected who are not yet showing that we don't know about. So for instance, if we had a thousand people who we know have the condition at the moment because they're symptomatic, um, and most of these were probably incubated somewhere between two to 10 days ago, then the number who are symptom-free who are gonna soon present in the future would be predicted to be in the tens of thousands, you're on the order of 20,000. And that is what we call exponential spread. And the problem is that if this gets out of control, while we have the medical technology to help people with this condition in a, when a fully resourced sense, if we have too many people needing ventilation and ICU care at any point in time, then the capacity of the health system, and it doesn't matter if it's in a, a Western nation or not, will be overwhelmed. Yeah. And this is the flattening the curve. So pretty much most people are going to get it in the next couple of years anyway, especially with that transmission rate. So that's kind of it, I guess. But if we can spread out how quickly they get it, we can let the medical system take care of people properly. So that's the key thing. Exactly. Exactly. And the, the instructions are actually not too difficult to avoid. You've got a meter separation, ideally. Uh, certainly the hands and surfaces being cleaned. Uh, don't cough or sneeze without covering completely because that's obviously a hyper transmission. Yeah. And did all that and avoided large congregations of densely packed people. Um, it would make a big difference in spreading out and flattening the curve. 100%. I mean, this is our public health message from our favourite Irishman. Basically, social isolation is the key to flattening the curve. So it's very possible that you know, most of us are gonna have this within the next couple of years. But the point is that we want to try and avoid uh, spreading it too rapidly, at which case even the most advanced health system will collapse. And it's really spread um, by respiratory droplets. Now, there is some debate about how far these travel. Usually they go no more than one or two meters, respiratory droplets for somebody coughs or sneezes. 
there is a, a bit of conjecture about whether they may remain airborne for a while or not. We, we truly don't know the answers at the moment. But the idea is that if we, uh, if we cover ourselves when we're coughing or sneezing, and this is where masks might actually come into their own, um, because they're actually not very good to protect you from disease, but they can actually prevent the spread quite, you know, we don't know how effectively, but if they catch a lot of droplets and stop them going, being aerosolized, then you'll, uh, you'll be in a better state. Um, oh, yes, yeah, I mean, a large hanky, if you've got a sniffle, uh, well applied would probably massively reduce the number of droplets that get out. Well, tissue, tissues are recommended because they can be disposed of. Yeah. So, or, or use the crook of your elbow. Um, just in terms of masks, I mean, I, I've got a couple of masks here just for, uh, uh, I just have them lying around from my medical kit, funnily enough. I didn't actually get these specifically um, for coronavirus. This is actually probably the one that I travel with athletes just to help them stop spreading an illness. And any athlete I've had with a respiratory illness, if we're on a bus situation or something else, please wear this mask. You can see it's not going to fit particularly tightly. It'll just go around um, over the years here. And if it's respiratory spread, you still air still comes in when you breathe and you're still potentially going to be infected. So this will stop, reduce the risk of spread, but it won't uh, stop you getting infected. To stop you being infected, you actually need a special mask. This is actually an example of called a duck-billed N95 mask, and they're actually a real chore to wear properly. They actually open out. We've got these two straps at the back here, and it actually gets worn over the... Um, has to seal incredibly tightly, and you'll... Uh, I won't put it on properly, um, but it actually basically creates a vacuum every time you inspire because there's no room, and these actually do... Uh, lose their effectiveness over time as well. So you can't go around in the community if you're going to wear an N95 mask um, It's just going to be Positively suffocating and claustrophobic for any prolonged period of time But uh, this is what if I'm exposed to it as a healthcare professional and I'm in a treatment situation Where I end up looking after people with uh, COVID-19 and this is the type of mask that I will be wearing Right very good. So there are the masks. And another question that gets asked, and there's a lot of balls, and I'm simply not replying, I'm getting a ton of uh, questions on Twitter and Facebook about supplements and whatnot. And I think there's no woo, there's no magic around supplements. It's simply a no-brainer that the least insulin resistant you are, the healthiest you are, obviously no sugars, no vegetable oils, the healthiest state you're in is going to push you right down to the very low mortality end of the curve. And it's probably fair to say, just like for any health longevity play, magnesium, selenium relates to the immune system, you know, getting healthy sun exposure or UV for nitric oxide and for all other types of uh, health promotion. You know, the usual set of vitamin supplements and minerals would apply here to be the healthiest you can be and to have the least chance of a very adverse reaction. But again, no magic. What do you think? hundred percent. I mean, and that's the reason we talked about the risk factors. You can't change your age, but you can change if you have unstable blood sugar levels. You can change if you smoke. Um, you might not be able to reverse obesity overnight, but you can certainly improve metabolic health. And given that this is going to be with us for several years, uh, is what I would predict, um, there is certainly time to make changes to your health before it strikes. And it's also probably an opportunity to uh, address cholesterol as well. 
Um, so a lot of people uh, are worried about you know going on a, a low carbohydrate diet, which will improve their blood sugar levels because it will actually make your cholesterol levels go higher. If we actually have a look at it, so there was one 1987 study that was done in California that followed people for over 15 years. And what it actually found is that the higher your total cholesterol level, the lower your risk of being admitted to hospital with pneumonia and influenza. And this effect was strongest in people who were oldest. So in terms of total cholesterol, um, we don't have experimental designs and obviously it hasn't been specifically studied for uh, coronavirus, but with regards to other respiratory pathogens and pneumonia, high cholesterol levels certainly um, is indicated that it's likely to be protective. And if we take a, a look at a subset of total cholesterol and look at LDL, there was a 2007 study that found an association between low LDL levels and fever and sepsis, which is basically uncontrolled infections. And so they basically looked at if you had an LDL of less than 70, which works out to be 1.8 millimoles in uh, Australian units, that was associated with a five times increased risk of death by infection. So you would actually uh, feel comfortable if your LDL was above that threshold based on the finding of the study. And if we have a look at HDL, there was another paper that was incidentally just published in January earlier this year, and that found that low HDL levels were also associated with increased risk of death in septic patients, basically patients with uh, um, widespread infection. And it was basically, uh, if you had a, a level of HDL that was lower than the medium, then your risk of uh, death from sepsis was doubled. So in terms of the cholesterol impact of ketogenic and low carbohydrate diets on your uh, risk factor for um, basically surviving a COVID infection, it would be suggested that higher cholesterol levels will routinely be a positive thing. Yeah, and you know, on those two points, uh, firstly, the LDL, there are all these associational studies, as you say, uh, Paul, but also we know now from many mechanistic studies that the LDL particles have a multiplicity of roles, and one of them, very strongly it's becoming more clear, is uh, an immune system functionality. Uh, actually binding to pathogens and deactivating them and then getting cleared. So the LDL yeah. particles have this immune function for your benefit. Uh, and on the HDL, I guess, I'm not so much sure the HDL particles would partake so much, but a lower HDL means insulin resistance, which of course... Oh no, the HDL itself has actually mechanistically been shown to be involved in the immune response. Uh, there's, there's definite biological plausibility. So these aren't just quirky mm. findings from epidemiological associational studies, they are actually supported by a biological mechanism. Yeah, and I would agree. I'm not so clear on the HDL particle functionality, but certainly it's a massive proxy for insulin resistance also. But either way, the low-carb keto is going to improve all of those lipid-related uh, kind of uh, quantums or quanta. Mm. And uh, it's going to resolve insulin resistance and blood pressure, or blood pressure too, uh, blood glucose spikes, uh, basal high levels of insulin and hyperinsulin. So a huge amount of play for there to move you in the right vector towards mm -hmm. exposure to a serious response to coronavirus. So that's all well, news. We don't know specifically how this will interact with COVID-19. True. But based on our, but we can say that in general, the ability to fight infection and specifically respiratory infection appears to be better with higher cholesterol levels. Yeah.
So now, interest to a lot of people who generally perceive hire as worse in all circumstances, and it's more complex than that. It's not necessarily the case at all. Yeah, and probably a topic that is uh, close to your heart at the moment, having travelled across from Europe and uh, being a bit jet-lagged at the moment, is sleep. Mm. So, uh, I mean, we've got experimental studies that show that sleep deprivation results in poorer immune function. And this includes things such as natural killer cells, which incidentally are one of the first lines of infection against viral infection. Um, you know, we have reduced levels of interleukin-2 and we have increased levels of uh, these pro-inflammatory cytokines, all associated with sleep deprivation. Um, yeah. When we give people immunization, say, a, a against the flu or a hepatitis, we've actually shown that sleep deprivation will actually impair the immune response to those vaccinations. And there was one study in 2009 where they actually... Uh, they found that if you were sleep deprived, then if they gave you nose drops with a, a rhinovirus, a, a virus, other, your chance of developing and becoming symptomatic with that uh, induced infection was increased by about three times, 2.94 times. So, and the difference was if you were sleeping less than seven hours or sleeping more than eight hours. So these people who think that, you know, seven hours is probably sufficient, I think if you're really wanting to try and boost your immunity as much as you can, I think you really are going to be striving for eight hours or more of sleep. You're really going to be taking care of your sleep hygiene. You're going to have a regular bedtime. You're going to not be exposing yourself to bright lights. You're going to be controlling your screen exposure. You're going to be making sure the room is actually cool. We know people sleep better when the temperature is about 19, 20 degrees. We know if you share a bed with a partner and you like to engage in the doona wars um, that some couples do, that you should have two separate doona covers. This is what the Scandinavians do. It really improves your sleep. There's a multitude of things that you can do to improve your sleep. But rest assured, if you want to have optimal immune functioning, then you need to be having optimal sleep. Absolutely agreed, Paul. And you know, the sleep as well in other uh, kind of vectors, it has been shown in studies that by depriving sleep down to, I think, four or five hours for just a couple of weeks, there was a halving of insulin sensitivity. And there were other studies as well showing an increase in free fatty acids in the blood and blood glucose, cortisol. So sleep is a hugely reparative process. And if you go in on it, your system is simply not going to be near as effective. So great point there. So I think we've covered the basics. We wanted this to be short and sharp. This is just from my Denver hotel room in the Sheraton. And uh, is that pretty much it? That's a good short, sharp summary of coronavirus and what you can potentially do to avert it. Look, I think there's probably one more point which may bear raising. Is I was reading some guidelines that are being um, disseminated to the public and they're recommending that if you have a fever, and I have to say that fever is one of the cardinal features of this, um, at least 99% of people with this will develop a fever, it's recommended that you take uh, something called acetaminophen or paracetamol or an ibuprofen or an anti-inflammatory type medication to break the fever. Now, we do know that these, the fever response is actually part of the immune response to fight infection. And there is some data, not specifically for coronavirus, but from other areas and other infections, that preventing a fever potentially by taking these drugs, paracetamol, may actually impair the function of the immune system. We've got lots of good research that shows if you give paracetamol to somebody before they have a vaccine, then their immune response to that vaccine is impaired. 
And there's also some equivocal data that shows that potentially people who are very sick in intensive care units, if they're given regular paracetamol, then that may actually increase their risk of dying from infection. So I would actually, based on an abundance of caution, if you have a low-grade fever then, and you're able to tolerate the symptoms, I would suggest not taking paracetamol or ibuprofen uh, unless recommended to by a doctor. Uh, you know what, Paul? That resonates with me as well because I remember many years back I was researching some kind of uh, meta metabolic effects and I came across that reality and some of the details that the fever is generated by the body to raise the temperature and make it less kind of amicable for virus in the body. There's a reason for it. So it makes mm. you artificially uh, kind of stunt that temperature response. You know, you're going to be taking away a little bit of your innate kind of uh, machinery that's aimed to help you. Now, of course, in a very high fever, or fever when you get febrile convulsions in young people or babies, of course it might make sense to tail it off a little. But like you say, if you can handle the temperature and the discomfort, it's probably helping you uh, in a reasonable fashion. So very good point. So that's about it, I guess. This is a short and sharp podcast, no high video on sound quality production qualities this time, but just want to get it there quickly. Fantastic. Now you go and enjoy your welcome in Denver. Oh, and I'm, do, and, uh, I'm looking be forward great. to your, you're doing a groundbreaking presentation, I believe. We're all excited. Ah, yes. We discussed the other day, yeah, the theory of atherosclerosis, whether it comes from the blood side, the LDL particles inside out into the wall, or whether the real problem comes from the outside of the artery into the wall. So, uh, we're going to be talking more about that pretty soon, I guess. I can't wait. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Paul. Dr. Paul Mason, thank you very much. Thanks. See you, Rada. Bye now. Thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see my subscribe button in the middle of the screen, a free viewing of the Widowmaker movie on the far right, and myself and Dr. Gerber's book, Eat Rich, Live Long, on the left. Otherwise, please do subscribe to the audio podcast. Thanks.